if someone makes a timing attack against you, right? Like it's an example that, um, and again, I have a, Martin Fowler has a, a really kind of long in-depth article on threat modeling for developers that, you know, is, is a great thing to start with. Welcome to the DevSec for Scale podcast, the show that makes security a first-class citizen for growing companies. My name is Jeremy Hest, head of developer relations at Aquilus, the secrets management SaaS platform. This interview podcast brings security experts and practitioners together to offer practical and actionable ways for small and growing companies to implement security best practices using shift left principles without interrupting developer life cycles. Welcome back everyone to the DevSec for Scale podcast. I'm Jeremy Hess, head of DevRel at Aquilus, and with me today is a fellow head of DevRel, Dan Moore. He's head of DevRel at Fusion Auth, a really cool company in the auth space, which we'll get into obviously very soon. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Wonderful. Now, it's always great to have uh, other DevRels on the show, on the, uh, you know, because I usually talk with, you know, executives or analysts or, you know, other people who are more maybe into the code hands-on with like, you know, programming developers, with, you know, this and that, but having a DevRel on someone I can relate to a lot more. So it's always fantastic. I mean, obviously you're uh, more of the technology oriented and the, you know, sort of developery type of DevRel. Uh, I hope to get there one day. Uh, and so, Let's let's go ahead before we get into a little bit more about you and what you do on a regular basis, you know, your for your work and all that. Let's just talk about auth. So can you give us a little bit of background? What is auth? And I say auth because I don't want to say the full word so we can give it a little room there. What is auth and what basically brought modern computing to the point of requiring IDPs in general? Yeah, so auth is uh, kind of this shorthand term for really three concepts that I think of. It's authentication, which is who you are. It is authorization or access control, which is what you can do when a system knows who you are. And then the last is, and this kind of gets stuffed in because it makes so much sense, is user management, right? So that's provisioning users and assigning them roles or attributes that can determine uh, their, uh, their access. And then, you know, as far as your second question, I think it's an interesting, interesting question because the honest truth is you can still get by without an IDP. Uh, you can roll your own auth, which includes like your own password hashing and access control system. And please don't do that because that's a horrible idea. I've done that in the distant past. And there's so many good options out there now that you shouldn't. One option, as you alluded to, is kind of a standalone IDP I call it an auth server uh, that is similar to a database server, but another option is to use libraries that are embedded in your application. Uh, there's stuff like Devise for Ruby. Um, I know Python has an OAuth library. Spring has stuff. .NET has stuff. So, you know, if it doesn't make sense to separate it out as a separate service because your application is getting off the ground or simpler, you can still definitely use the library. But that's kind of a side note. The reason why I think IDPs, standalone auth servers are becoming more and more prevalent is it's reducing friction for the end user and is offloading this, you know, really large source of um, liability to a specialized piece of software. And that piece of liability is user data, in particular user credentials. Uh, there's a great site out there called Have I Been Pwned, which 
has like a list of 600, I think 600 billion accounts that passwords have been compromised by. And, it, and it, every so often the guy who runs it gets another drop from another company. And it's unfortunate, but this just just happening. So uh, there are techniques that you can use to um, prevent credential stuff, uh, prevent, prevent those credentials from being um, useful to attackers. And we can talk about those later if we want, but that is that whole kind of complex security thing that, that helps prevent those kind of attacks is something that makes sense to offload. The final thing I'd say is it's kind of like credit card numbers, right? You could hold credit card numbers in your application, but there's a whole industry around offloading that, whether that's old school providers like authorized.net or new school providers like Stripe. And I feel like IDPs um, from a company perspective offer some of that same kind of arm's length, uh, dedicated, focused uh, handling of, of secure data. Got it. Got it. Great stuff. So let's go a little bit into uh, you and uh, your background and what you're doing today. Give us uh, give us the lowdown. Sure. So I'm a th- thank you for asking, but I, everyone loves talking about themselves, right? Uh, I am a longtime engineer. I've been writing code for over two decades. And a couple of years ago, I transitioned into a more of a DevRel uh, role. And I've been at FusionAuth since 2020. And my role here, it's a um, company on the smaller side. And I think we're at 20-ish employees now. But uh, the thing I love about this kind of role is that I really run the gamut from community support, answering questions in forums, on GitHub issues, uh, working with the product team or the engineering team to kind of define the product requirements, I also do post-sale stuff. So if there's like deep questions that the customer support can't answer, um, I help the engineering team out by investigating things, um, maybe filing bugs, maybe giving architectural feedback. So uh, my role as DevRel is a little more expansive than it might be for a, a DevRel in a bigger company or on a bigger team. Sure, yeah, it's that startup mindset for sure. Got to take a couple of positions because it's where you're needed. So it's, it's always important to be where you're needed, when you're needed, because ultimately, you know, your customers and your users, you know, is where you want to be. So pick up where, wherever you can, right? Well, and I honestly think that there's some, some, and this may be a side note, so feel free to cut this if you want, but I think there's some real synergies between doing solution architecting or solution engineering and DevRel because I can see questions that come up again and again, and then I end up turning that into documentation that hopefully will help users at scale as opposed to people that can afford to pay for our support contracts. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of, of that side of things as well, creating knowledge bases and forums and ways for other people to interact, even if they don't necessarily have the budget. So let's get back to, you know, what we're talking about in terms of auth in general. Um, And I wanted to ask you a little bit about security risks, you know, being an IDP, what are some of those security risks that that you see um, that, you know, kind of really should have to be more careful about in terms of building uh, your own product, right? So you as an, an auth company, right? building that product, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So there, uh, there was a couple of things that jumped to mind. The first is we have a really extensive test suite and regression testing is really, really important to us, both from a 
backward compatibility perspective, which is important if you're any kind of dev tool, right? Nothing annoys a developer more than upgrading and then realizing that they had to change their integration. But also from a security perspective, if there is a security issue that pops up, we want to make sure we solve that not just once for one version, but for all time. So an example that might be where the user logs in, right? And if a user logs in and has, uh, or sorry, if an attacker is attempting to log in as a user, perhaps using some of those stolen credentials we talked about earlier, then if that user exists, it might take a little bit longer to return all the information, gather it from the database, return it, uh, maybe do some post-processing on it, than it will if the user doesn't exist. But if you return back immediately, then the attackers glean some information, right? They might be able to know, oh, this email address doesn't exist. Therefore, if I register that user, I'll be able to, um, you know, uh, I'll have a higher chance of being able to register that user or something like that. So you basically want to add in some, some jitter, some random timing to return back a, uh, you know, to make sure that that kind of timing attack doesn't uh, leak any extra information. And that's a, a bigger um, a bigger security kind of mindset thing is not to leak any information, right? As little information as possible. Another example of that is you return back the same error code, whether a user exists or they don't exist if they're trying to log in. Um, I think that's some other ones. SAML and XML, we support SAML v2, which is a standard from 2005 that helps with single sign-on. And there's definitely um, some complexities around processing XML. We actually have an open source library that we have um, given to the community, but there have been some CVEs against that, that we've actually had some pen testers discover uh, because XML is complicated and hard. So that's one thing that as an auth server, if you want to support SAML, uh, especially if you're not using a battle-tested library, you're going to um, have some frustrations around that. And the last thing I would say is just dependencies. I think that we have kind of a mindset as an auth server at, that we're kind of one component in the application stack, right? No one uses Fusion Auth alone. That's a, not something that would really happen. And so we want to minimize the dependencies that we have and make sure that we keep track of those and we keep them updated. We keep on top of any vulnerabilities that may be discovered in those dependencies, but keeping that dependency tree small is something that I think is a is good practice. Great. Yeah, absolutely. That was a pretty uh, extensive look into, uh, into different issues that you come across just uh, from that standpoint of, of being an IDP. And let's, let's get a little bit into something uh, that I found pretty interesting that you wrote about recently. You're talking about the idea of IAM versus CIAM. Uh, I don't, well, I'm not even going to say what they are. I'll let you discuss what they are, but can you give us a bit more about, you know, where, where this came from, what your idea was when you were thinking about that and what makes them different? Sure. Yeah. So IAM is identity access management and CIAM is customer identity access management. And so you might say, well, <laughs> what's IAM about if CIAM is about customers and IAM is really about your employees, and your workforce. And the difference between them is really, you know, your employees, you have a known life cycle, right? Like you're hired, you work for a while, and then you leave a company. 
Um, you see them pretty often and they access your systems pretty often and you can make them do things, right? Like if you say to an employee, Hey, you need to turn MFA on like my bosses did for me, uh, you're going to, the employees are going to do that. CIM is, is a totally different world, right? Like you have a lot more customers than you have employees. So there's scale issues. Uh, you see them a lot less often, but the interactions that they have are really interesting to a lot of different departments, right? Whereas secure, whereas an IM interaction, right? When someone's logging in as an employee and accessing application A or B, that's probably only interesting to the people who are doing their job and then maybe security, right? The security controls to, to make sure someone's not accessing app C, which they shouldn't. Well, with CIM, marketing wants it, sales wants it, um, legal might want it, security might want it. So there's a lot more integrations, but they're more sporadic. And then the other thing is that's kind of a crucial difference is you can't make them do anything um, or you have less control over them because they're paying you money instead of you paying them money. So there are a ton of overlaps in terms of the concepts, right? They're both users, they both access things, but in terms of what the system is designed to do, um, there's just a different set of constraints between IAM and CIAM systems. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, I think that that's a, a super interesting topic and there's probably a lot more to unpack as well, but we're gonna keep moving forward, uh, focusing on, on auth in general. Now, uh, one of the interesting things we're seeing, of course, over the years is the move to native apps, especially native mobile apps, uh, of course, with, you know, iOS, Android, et cetera. And authorization, of course, being something that needs to, you know, stay with the times. Uh, and so the question I have really is, you know, what are the differences that you're seeing, you know, with regards to authorization, uh, you know, security between mobile apps and browser-based apps? Yeah, so, you know, often just happen in both those applications, right? Like you typically need to know, there are obviously some apps where you don't need to know um, who someone is, but for the vast majority of apps, both browser-based apps and mobile apps, you do need to be able to authenticate and authorize someone. So mobile apps have more options around authentication because you can stay in the mobile uh, app Chrome, right? In the normal UI, you can pop out to a web view, you can pop out to a system browser and which of those options makes sense depends on what your risk profile is around somebody else getting the credentials um, or the, the tokens that the credentials actually produce. You um, also have the worry about malicious apps that are scanning a shared file system that is present on, on a mobile device that probably isn't as present on a browser-based device. And the other thing is that I think browsers have cookies which have their problems, but are kind of a well-known, well-tested uh, way to, to store things you know, locally and to offer up you know, functionality that we are used to like sessions and whatnot. Um, whereas I think mobile apps give you a little more latitude. So there, I wouldn't say if you, if you press me, I wouldn't say one is more secure than the other. They just have different attributes and you need to be aware of those when you're, when you're coding to either one. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so let's, uh, move forward. Uh, you know, what are some of the potential issues that you see developers might run into, uh, using SSO? And uh, how uh, how do you protect against them? 
Sure. So I will say, I think SSO is a fantastic um, technology, or it's a, it's something that I think that users really, really love. It, it solves a lot of heartache for them. The things that you want to think about in terms of um, your, a couple of things, right? There's plenty to think about, but two things that jump to mind immediately are when you have SSO between a couple of different apps, you actually have one additional session. So if you have a two apps, then you actually have three sessions you need to think about. And you want to think about like how they interact in terms of expiration, in terms of possibly um, being um, hijacked. And so those are things that you want to think about. Um, the other thing is, if especially for the browser world, there are some changes coming to user agents. You all may have heard of the demise of third-party cookies. Uh, that is going to, it, it could conceivably affect SSO interactions because if your uh, IDP lives on a different um, different domain, it may not get those third-party cookies or it may not be able to set those third-party cookies into your domain. And so one workaround for that is to make sure that you have an IDP living on your domain and you set, set those first-party cookies when they first log in. And there's actually a link. I'll I'll make sure to get that to you, Jeremy. Is um, the there's a working group with the W3C that is looking at how you can preserve user privacy and and kind of prepare for the end of third-party cookies, but at the same time allow this kind of SSO and federation to occur because again, you want to balance the security and the privacy needs with the user experience that benefits of SSO. Sure. Yeah, that's obviously one of the big uh, issues when it comes to any type of security, especially when you're talking about your users, is figuring out how to deal with making sure that their uh, user experience is solid and not uh, too wonky or clunky, uh, but at the same time, making sure that you're keeping everything as secure as you can. So uh, there's a lot of different options that uh, attackers have <laughs> for vectors of, of attacking when talking about logging in and, and you know, every user having their own, some of them having the different ways to log in and using different methods. Uh, so it's really, really an interesting, uh, interesting topic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about sort of, I guess we call it the elephant in the room, Okta. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're in the similar space, I think, right? And uh, they're, they're a little bit bigger. So <laughs> just a little bit. Um, but I was doing some reading, and I and I understand that FusionAuth uh, has quite a few differences uh, from Okta. And I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of uh, the single tenancy. Um, so why is it that you know what's the philosophy that FusionAuth has that they're focusing on single tenant, where you know as opposed to Okta or other um, IDPs? Sure. So first of all, I want to say acknowledge that. Um, Auth0, who Okta acquired 2021, I believe, um, has done a tremendous job in terms of just educating the developer community about authentication authorization in general. And um, I know some people at Auth0 and I respect them. I think Okta acquired them to make more money because that's what companies do, which is you know good on them. Um, but I will say that they have a kind of a fundamentally different approach to 
uh, how they architect their solution. And you alluded that in terms of FusionAuth being single tenant and Okta or Auth0 being multi-tenant. And for your users or your listeners, excuse me, who might be a little bit unfamiliar with those concepts, basically multi-tenancy is where everybody runs against one um, or you know, one logical server, right? It may be many different servers, but they're all communicating with the same database. And the, the different tenants, different clients, right? Like I might have a company A, you might have company B, we might both use a multi-tenant solution and we're logically separated, right? We're in the same database conceivably, but there's some key that's a tenant ID or something like that. And when I log in to manage my users, I uh, am tied to that tenant. And when you log in to manage your users, you're tied to that tenant. Single tenant solutions are, you're physically isolated. You're, you're running on your own machine. You're running on your own um, database. And so that provides just a high level of security, right? It's the same thing as if I have a, a, a laptop at home and members of my family log into it, that is a different level of security than if we all have separate laptops. So that's kind of setting some context. Uh, the, 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 I think the reason why FusionAuth does that, there are the notable security benefits. Authent comes out of our the way we grew up, right? Um, we actually have a downloadable solution that people can and do run on their own. And that actually was around before we ever offered a SaaS offering. Our SaaS offering is what is single tenant. Um, and so it came up about how we grew up. It also came up because I think it offers those security benefits, but it also offers some other different benefits. Um, there's no noisy neighbor issue because you're running on your own server, your own hardware. Uh, you can actually control your version, which I think is an understated, valuable thing. When you, again, back to developers integrating solutions, um, they want the same way that you can version your libraries that you depend on, your JavaScript or Ruby or Java application, you can control the version of FusionAuth that you're running. And so we will not force an upgrade on you without, um, you know, you basically control your, your upgraded, uh, your, your version. And obviously you can do that with a SaaS model too, right? Or with a um, multi-tenant model. It just is a simpler thing to do if you're in a single tenant model. And the last dif difference is um, just kind of the different deployment options, right? I, I can't already mention that people can download it and run it themselves. I think that would be a, a harder thing to do if you were kind of an Octo or a Auth0 in a multi-tenant world. I, I know that they've offered that for, I think they offer some own cloud options if you're if you're paying a certain amount of money, but because we're built from the ground up to be a single tenant, it's very easy for us to offer that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely an interesting uh, split in philosophy there and, uh, you know, both having their benefits uh, and uh, it's it's interesting to see players in, in that space that have this kind of fundamental philosophical difference in the way the the applications were originally built from uh, from the ground up so really cool uh, now the last question that i like to ask uh to my guests and this is somewhat the last question because we are going to have a follow-up episode about a little bit more uh you know in the weeds type of topics we'll talk more kubernetes and stuff like that uh but for now 
Can you give us uh, one or two tips that you have for developers in, let's say, smaller growing organizations to implement security practices into their daily routines, but without really interrupting their general work uh, cycles? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because it is part of, I think security is becoming more and more part of every developer's job, right? Um, because of some of the horrible breaches and, and the issues that we've, we've seen happen. So I, to, to pick just two, um, the first I would do is I'd, I'd read the OWASP, OWASP, OWASP stuff. Um, there's a top 10 list and there's a lot of just low hanging fruit, right? Like don't accept user input without validating it, uh, is one that jumps to mind, but there's a ton of other things. Um, I was talking to a developer the other day and they said, you know, a lot of devs in their experience don't authenticate against their APIs, right? They don't require authentication, which is just basically throwing a, a sign up that says attack me. So read the OWASP, OWASP top 10. Um, hopefully we can put a link in the show notes. Um, and then I think the other thing is to think about threat modeling. And I don't think threat modeling needs to be that imposing of a thing. I think it can be a small thing you do periodically. And basically threat modeling is a fancy way to say, think about what could go wrong from a security perspective. Like what happens if someone sends in, um, if someone makes a timing attack against you, right? Like it's an example of it. Um, and again, I have a, Martin Fowler has a, a really kind of long in-depth article on threat modeling for developers that, you know, is, is a great thing to start with. So, I guess the two tips would be familiarize yourself with the security landscape. Um, there's a couple of great projects out there and then think about security as you're coding features. And again, you know, your point about having it be too much interruption is a really well taken one because you don't want it to be a big one. But I think the same way that we've evolved to um, have CICD or have UX or have, um, you know, data modeling as part of being a developer, I think having some awareness of security is going to be really important going forward. Absolutely. That's great. And that's basically the show, Dan. So, I mean, this was a great episode. I think this was one of the less sort of very focused um, episodes, which was really cool because I think we covered a breadth of topics uh, in one, uh, one episode from IAM to SSO, et cetera, right? So we really got into a lot of different parts of what auth means and how it affects an organization and users and internal users. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, had a, I had a great great time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I really look forward to the next one where, like I said, we're going to talk more about Kubernetes authentication and authorization. So that should be a, a really fun one as well uh, for all the Kubernetes lovers out there, which is basically everyone these days, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get more into that and uh, I really appreciate your time and have a really fantastic day hey Jeremy thank you so much for having me and I really enjoyed the breadth of discussion and I'm looking forward to our next one fantastic and well before we actually hang up why don't you tell everyone where they can reach you sure so I am on Twitter at mmoreds m-o-o-r-e-d-s and you can always learn more about FusionAuth at fusionauth.io Perfect. Thanks so much, Dan. Have a really good one. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.